On this week's Texas Tribune TribCast, we'll talk about the Beto O'Rourke 2020 buzz, the latest in Ken Paxton's long-running indictment and the debate over Confederate plaque at the Texas Capitol. But before we do, I'd like to thank today's TribCast sponsors. In lieu, support your friends by supporting their cause. Donate to their favorite charity in lieu of a material gift. Visit inlieu.com to, to learn more. And Texas Gulf Coast Community Colleges. The nine Texas Gulf Coast Community Colleges are training Texans for high-demand careers in leading industries. Find out more at gulfcoastcc.org. Do I have to talk you in there? Do we have to make sense of it? Well, I know you're such a long time. Hello, this is Patrick Svitek here on Wednesday, November 28th with the Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by politics editor Amon Bathija. Hi. Reporter Emma Platoff. Hey there. <laughs> and reporter Cassie Pollock. Without Evan, we don't have, you know, this long wind-up in the beginning. It is always jarring. Um, <laughs> as always, we'll take your questions in real time on Twitter and Facebook. You can do it using the hashtag TripCast. Uh, one more housekeeping note. If you haven't yet listened to the pilot episode of Evan Smith's new podcast, Point of Order, do yourself a favor. You can find it on our website or on the TripCast channel of your podcast player of choice. All right, let's get started. Uh, so in case anyone missed it, uh, Betomania is upon us again. I don't think it ever left, per se, <laughs> uh, but at a town hall Monday a new in strain. El Paso. <laughs> exactly. Uh, town hall Monday in El Paso. Beto work made uh, pretty clear he's not ruling out uh, anything uh, as far as his political future is concerned, including a potential presidential run, which obviously a lot of people would like to see him do. Um, you know, these comments obviously generated a lot of attention, um, a lot of renewed hype, as, as we just alluded to. Based on what we've heard from him since his campaign, how significant were these comments? And does it seem like he's actually moving in the direction or thinking about or running for president at this juncture? If he's not thinking about it, he is really <laughs> it's kind of mean at this point. Because <laughs> he went for months saying, I will not be a candidate for president. And as soon as the campaign's over, he now says, right. maybe. Um, yeah, in the days before the Senate election, he said, I think the direct quote was, I will not be a candidate for president in 2020. I think some NBC reporter actually just held the mic to him and said, say those words, promise me this. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so obviously it's a, it's a reversal there. Um, I'm gonna, you should, we should start trying that with politicians. Right. Say, Repeat after me. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've tried that with some politicians, to be fair. <laughs> Emma, what do you think? He, I mean, he, it's, it's, it's definitely a significant backtrack, and I think he even acknowledged in his comments, he says, I know I'm changing my position. Right, I know this is right, different from what it. I said. Um, I mean, you know, here in Austin, I've been seeing Beto for Senate yard signs, uh, Sharpie edited to say Beto 2020 since <laughs> November 7th. Right. So I don't think it's any surprise that there's buzz, I guess. This really right. reminds me of um, like the fall of, I think it was 2013, like after Wendy Davis's filibuster. Right. She became this national star and there was all these people pushing her to run for governor. And within Texas, you heard Democrat circles like, yes, she's our biggest star. And then others saying, no, she's just not right to run statewide. They can't be her. But there was just this like huge national groundswell of like, it has to be her. We don't, like, it was almost like, we don't even care if she wins. We just, we really, really wanted to run for governor. Mm -hmm. And it kind of feels like that now. And just that there's this like, it almost feels like Beto has no choice because there's just people pushing him so hard. We talk to some people and they, they treat it like it's almost uh, inevitable. Right. That he's basically already running. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, and and other people are treating it like it would be a, a negative, right? Um, sure. I think Chris Hooks had a piece in the Observer. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I wanted Texas to get to this too is, oh, you know, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not, Thank you, Cassie. Try, not trying to, to push us into. No, no, that's called a segue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
No, but that's that's a legitimate question too. It's obviously he could have other options uh, in terms of a political future. You have some Texas Democrats who say that maybe it's a better choice to run against John Cornyn in, in 2020. We haven't. I've heard that he's not interested in that or hasn't expressed any interest in that. Um, is that the smarter choice politically? Is uh, not to run for president, run against Cornyn, or or just sit out 2020 and, and wait to see what happens in the future? Well, as we've reported, I think a Senate run against John Cornyn is incredibly different from a Senate run right. against Ted Cruz. Um, John Cornyn, obviously, a top leadership for Republicans in the U.S. Senate. Um, and he's also a less controversial figure, I think it's fair to say. Even during his own campaign, Beto was sort of touting the bipartisan work he's done with Cornyn. So to pivot from that to run against him in 2020, I think would be kind of a challenging move. But, you know, we've we've seen him pivot on some right. things already. So Sure. <laughs> the, <laughs> he's betrayed us before. <laughs> right. <laughs> the argument for him running against Cornyn is, say he runs for president, he doesn't survive the primary, a Texan, neither does William right. Cash or anyone else, so no Texan is at the top of the ticket. The argument that Texas is a swing state in the presidential race in 2020 is less, it's harder to make. If Bader work is at the top of, you know, next on the ballot in 2020 against John Cornyn, it's much stronger argument that Texas may be in play. Right. And we saw John Cornyn himself say that. I think just this week he said, you know, Texas is purpling. We need to keep an eye on Texas. Right. I don't think he used purpling as a verb. I think that was just right. me. In that same I apologize, Senator. I've heard him say this before. He kind of, <laughs> Cornyn has kind of like in, almost kind of, uh, he said, I, you know, I kind of expect that dude to run for president. He said he has stars in his eyes. And <laughs> and you know, basically saying like, nah, I don't, you don't need to run against me. It's all good. Like, <laughs> I'm take, good. That, take that fundraising machine elsewhere. It's yeah. all good. Um, so, I mean, it, it, that doesn't seem like a likely matchup at this point, but it, it still seems relatively early, at least to me. I know some people, you know, there's been kind of this groundswell of like, you know, O'Rourke needs to say what he's going to do now, mm -hmm. what he's going to do by Christmas or, or right mm -hmm. after Christmas. Does he have does he have time to kind of uh, wait on this or, or to, to think this through? I personally think he has plenty of time. Right. Especially <laughs> if you're if you're a hot commodity, which he appears to be, you know, nationally, um, you know, you have the benefit of, of dragging it out a little bit. And if the, you know, if the support continues to be there, um, and we, we saw, you know, the Washington Post and Politico sent reporters to El Paso for his just monthly town hall on Monday, first post-election public appearance. Um, so he's clearly getting the, you know, the media attention and there's going to be that kind of um, spotlight on him. So why, you know, why, why rush it? He's not like Kamala Harris or uh, Elizabeth Warren, who's, you know, who've made trips to, I think, Iowa and New Hampshire and stuff. He's been running for a really hard race that he then lost. So the idea that he would have announced by now just... Like, no one expects that. Like, I don't think people in Iowa or New Hampshire are going to be, like, angry that he <laughs> waited until... Where's Beto? Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, if it, if it gets to, like, I don't know, maybe I'm being generous, but if it gets to, like, the spring and he hasn't made a decision, they might start to get a little antsy. Yeah. But I think now no one's, expect, no one's like, upset that he hasn't announced yet. Just to compare to other Texas Democrats who are <laughs> kind of eyeing a presidential <laughs> yeah. bit, Castro has said, I'm going to make right. an announcement by the end of the year, right? That's, that's yeah, the latest that we've yeah, heard. The end of the year or the start of next year? He said something. He used. To, he said, obviously, an announcement and decision can be separate things, but he said, you know, plan to make a decision <laughs> by the end of this thank year. You, thank you. We <laughs> need to get out of our dictionary. <laughs> exactly. So, But end of the year, early next year, and that's what I was going to ask about, too, is you know, you could have these two Texans in the race. What, if you're Julian Castro, what are you thinking right now in terms of you've been preparing for the past two years yeah, for an all but certain, uh, yeah, exactly, or since diapers, basically. <laughs> yeah, possibly since run. birth, yeah. And, um, you know, and, and now you have this, this star coming out of your home state who clearly, you know, for the time being at least, has more star power than you. I, I guess if you're Castro, you're thinking, you know, it's maybe popularity versus preparation. I, I, I've 
been traveling to these these states for the past two years. I have been connecting with activists and, and meeting the right people. Beto's obviously been here in Texas, you know, doing his thing, but may not have the infrastructure ready to go. I mean, if you're Castro, what, what's kind of, what are you telling yourself at this point? Well, one thing I would think he's probably thinking is, um, it's you know it it it's 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 not great to not be the star, but it also means you don't have the target on your back. Exactly, and he's yeah, got months point. to like continue campaigning and not be the center of attention, which right. could serve an advantage. You know, just kind of make him less battered. You know, and entry into the end of twenty nineteen. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious: is there resentment among Democrats right now just that Castro didn't throw his hat into the ring this this cycle to challenge? Cruz or Abbott. You know, I'm sure that's kind of like a hindsight is 2020 thing. You look back on how the cycle went for Democrats and, you know, it's like, of course, you know, Castro should have run for governor, you know, mm. um, given the results that we had. Um, I'm sure there's some. You know, yeah. I think there's I always mean, been that kind of. I mean, of, and is there any way that that somehow the, bites right. him down the line? I mean, I'm just thinking I think it plays into a perception <laughs> that he's just, he's a very, very cautious politician. Whereas, I mean, when, when it worked out into the race for Senate, everyone... He was like, I've got nothing to lose. And transparent. <laughs> right. But dinner, um, you know, with at wife. the same time, <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> that was the ultimate sign that he's running. He hopped back on Facebook Live and, and did a, you know, a task like cooking dinner the other night. But you know, honestly, if, if he had gotten into the race against Abbott, I think, you know, we would have been hearing all this second guessing and people saying, you know, he's our biggest star in the state. Why is he wasting, w- wasting a shot running against Abbott? He should have waited two years or, you know, right. run for president or something. So I, I, th- I think he was kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. <laughs> Yeah. Um, just more broadly, I know we didn't have TripCast last week, so we didn't cover this story, but we had a story on the Tribune just about how 2020, the O'Rourke future, but also just the political landscape in, in Texas writ large is already kind of looming large here in the state. We've all now had some time to obviously look through the midterm results. Um, you know, Democrats, you know, feel like they took a pretty big step forward to making Texas a more politically competitive state. They have, you know, this, you know, natural reason for optimism in 2020 with a presidential election year, presumably higher turnout. Now that we've looked through all these numbers and, and thought about it a little bit, is, is there optimism about 2020 in Texas well-founded in terms of just the overall political landscape shifting in their favor further in, in 2020? Well, John Cornyn thinks it's well-founded. <laughs> right. He seems like he probably knows. Right. Um, but yeah, I honestly think, you know, if you're Julian Castro, if you're a national Democrat, if you're a Texas Democrat, I think you owe Beto O'Rourke some thanks for making anyone think that Texas is in play. I'm not sure this is right. a conversation we would have been having, you know, even a year ago. Right. Mm-hmm. What do you think of the, you know, the the Republicans who may be skeptical of Texas really being, you know, quote, in play in 2020 would argue Beto O'Rourke was a unique phenomenon. You, you may not have him at the top of the ticket in Texas in 2020. We just had a discussion about, you know, will or won't. <laughs> we'll go back to that. But I mean, what, you know, is there any validity to that, that, you know, it's funny because, you know, that's that's kind of what Republicans said in the some Republicans I talked to in 2016, which was, you know, when you look at these district level numbers that really shifted. It's like, oh, that's Donald Trump at the top of the ticket. He's kind of a unique guy, you know, obviously unpopular in some ways that other Republican nominees weren't. Um, but those trends that started under Trump in the, at the district level continued under O'Rourke. And so I'm just curious, you know, in 2020, are, are uh, Democrats you know, do they have a good reason to be optimistic even if they don't have a bet to work? I think if you're saying if the state's in play statewide, maybe not. You know, th- this could have been a fluke and uh, it'll, you know, Republicans might, you know, have right. stronger margins in 2020. But if you're talking about just, you know, the congressional delegation and the legislature right. and just seeing more races where 
Democrats are going to fight harder and right. draw better candidates, which is the key. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, then it's, it's, yeah, that, it's that, undeniable 2020 is going to be a just much more competitive right. field. Yeah, I think regardless of whether you have a better work at the top of the mm-hmm. ticket or not, you are going to have these races that suddenly, based on the results of this time and last time, suddenly look much more in play. That's going to help with drawing candidates in the first place. I mean, mm-hmm. getting a candidate yeah. used to be kind of a struggle in some of these districts. And not only that, but drawing stronger candidates. I mean, I think you're going to have crowded Democratic primaries for districts that four years ago right. may have literally had no Democratic candidate. Right. Do you think that trickles down to the state House level? Probably a little bit, yeah. And that's we, one thing, too. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, we saw that on the courts. You know, Democrats swept. They they flipped four major state appeals courts. And these are races where these are districts that Hillary Clinton won in 2016. There was no Democrat on the ballot to win with her. So I think you see these races where, they, you know, in the past it wasn't even worth running. We had candidates who won this time after raising $1,500. Right. Um, and in 2020, I think people are going to be paying a little more attention, especially in these sort of suburban counties on the fringes of big cities like Austin, Houston, Dallas. Right. I agree 100%. Um, Okay, I think that's enough talk. <laughs> uh, we'll definitely come back to this. Uh, let's move on to some some more recent news. Um, uh, Emma, l- late last week, there was uh, a long-awaited ruling in, in a case related to the, the long-running indictment uh, against Attorney General Ken Paxton. This stuff is complicated. It's been going on for a very long time. Can you tell us a little bit about the ruling um, and, and the context on it? So, right, this is sort of a long, long-running case as these tend to go. Uh, Ken Paxson was indicted in 2015 on securities fraud charges. The ruling last week was tangentially related to that. Basically, the issue at hand now is who's going to prosecute Ken Paxton because, as you can imagine, that's not, a, that's not a job people are fighting for. So the issue was how much the prosecutors who've been appointed to prosecute Ken Paxton can be paid and the state's highest criminal court, the Texas uh, Court of Criminal Appeals, last week ruled against the prosecutors saying, you know, the the pay schedule basically that had been set up was overpaying them. Uh, so does this throw the case into, um, I, I think it certainly signals a delay, right? The prosecutors have said, we may not go forward with this case if we're not paid sort of at this level that we were expecting. Right. But uh, so far... As I know, there's been no movement from them to right. The prosecutors haven't said whether they're going to follow through on what they basically implicitly threatened, threatened. before this ruling, <laughs> yeah. which was that if the ruling didn't go in their favor, that they would withdraw from the case. Uh, the prosecutors so far haven't said what exactly they're going to do. Um, you know, and I don't know the exact uh, you know sequence if they were to withdraw from the case, but it's very clear as you pointed out, this case is a political hot potato. Maybe hard to find somebody who who wants to kind of take this up right. uh, after you know three years after it started, yeah. um, and so I think it just casts you know deep uncertainty over the the future of this um, this case, the, the main case, which has been you know going on since summer of, of twenty fifteen. Um, what about just the, the the we every time there's a legal development in, in the Paxton saga, we talk about what the political impact is. He was just reelected. Um, it was a bit of a fight, a little more competitive at the, or at least a little more outwardly competitive, publicly competitive at the end than, than probably some people would have expected. But he was just reelected. Days later, the Republican Attorneys General Association named him their chairman. They're clearly not concerned about <laughs> him going anywhere anytime soon. Right. I mean, what's his what's his political standing? Uh, you know, heading into the second term. 
for right now, he doesn't have much to worry about, right? He doesn't face a re-election for several years. He just won. It was, I believe, the closest statewide contest. I think just about four point margin of victory over Democrat Justin Nelson. But outside of the bet door work, outside of yeah, the, yeah. of course, of course, that uh, ever present caveat there. Um, but he he has plenty of time, I think, to sort of deal with this legal drama before he has to worry about electoral problems again. Mm-hmm. Come on. Um, one thing I, I'm kind of fascinated about this idea of, um, like there isn't a democratic, there are tons of democratic lawyers in Texas. None of them would just like raise their hand and say, I'll, I'll, pro- I'll, yeah, yeah, that may be where I'll, it goes. I'll prosecute yeah. the attorney general. Up for a nice 2020 run. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and we'll see. I mean, this is how we ended up here, right? Is that the local prosecutors up in Collin County said, you know, we know this guy. We don't, we want to be recused from this case. We don't want to be involved in it. I'm sure, I'm sure there are many people, you know, maybe Justin Nelson, a trial lawyer himself, is one of them who would love to get Ken Paxton in Oh my God, that would be the best twist ever. <laughs> I, I didn't intend to plant that seed Thousand there, but I, w- I wouldn't complain. <laughs> but we'll see, we'll have to see where it goes. What the prosecutors have basically said is, you know, if you don't let, Lawyer, you know, lawyers cost a lot of money, right? And th- these cases take hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of hours. And what they've said is you kind of risk scaring people off if you're not going to pay us at what we consider yeah. to be a fair rate. This is also not like, you know, a hit and run or something where like a straightforward kind of right. legal case. This is securities fraud. It's really complicated and you need lots of experts and just all of that just is really expensive. Absolutely. It and is, he's yeah. been cleared on the civil side, I believe, twice. So it's not it's not cut and dried, I would assume, and there yeah right. there's l- lots more briefing to be done here. Yeah, not over yet for sure. Um, before our next topic, I'd like to thank uh, two more Tripcast sponsors: the Holdsworth Center, founded by HEB Chairman and CEO Charles Butt. The Holdsworth Center helps Texas public school districts cultivate a pipeline of effective leaders. Visit HoldsworthCenter.org to learn more. And our other sponsor, Texas State University System. The Texas State University System is Texas's first university system with seven institutions spanning 700 miles. Learn more at tsus.edu. Um, and also before we get to our next topic, just want to remind anyone uh, watching online to send us your questions and we'll, we'll get to as many as we can uh, before the end of uh, today's TripCast. Emma, let's just stay with you briefly. I know you're thrilled about this. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> another another story in recent days uh, that you've been kind of monitoring or that you've monitored in the past is the debate over this Confederate plaque at, at the Texas Capitol. Uh, many of you, I think, historically inaccurate. This debate's been going on for over a year now. Um, State Representative Eric Johnson, Democrat from Dallas, uh, you know, started calling for its removal last fall, I think. I mean, this has been a long saga. There was a Speaking of Ken Paxton, he issued an opinion last week, morning before Thanksgiving, um, <laughs> along with a bunch big, of other Big news day, it turns out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I'm glad I didn't wait until the afternoon or the evening. The morning was right. kind of a courtesy. <laughs> um, but what, what was he asked to opine on about this plaque, and, and what did he say? So as you said, there's been a lot of criticism. This plaque basically says that the Civil War was, quote, not a rebellion, nor was its underlying cause to sustain slavery. There's been a lot of criticism that that plaque is historically inaccurate, and and lawmakers over the years have pushed for it to be removed. So Paxson was asked, as the state's top lawyer, to say who is legally allowed to take it down and, you know, under what circumstances. So that's what he did last week. And he sort of laid out a trio of options can be taken down by the state's... Menu. 
<laughs> um, yeah, uh, the state's historical commission by the state preservation board, which has a is a six member board, which includes the governor or the legislature could vote to take it down. So he's kind of laid out those options, and we'll we'll sort of see who who chooses what, who orders what. <laughs> I'm gonna guess Eric Johnson files a bill. <laughs> <Did you know? laughs> yeah, I mean, what, was there any immediate fallout from this? This was I forgetting because uh, it was. The, Wednesday before Thanksgiving, but I mean, did anybody <laughs> shoot their hand haze. up immediately and say, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll take up this cause right now, now that we've been cleared by Ken Paxton to do so? Um, Eric, John has, Eric Johnson has, in, in the past, he's asked the State Preservation Board to take it down. They are, uh, that sort of underlying a political board is looking into sort of policies. You know, if we were asked to take it down, what would happen? Mm -hmm. Um I believe Joe Strauss has said, you know, this plaque should come down. This yeah, isn't he a did question. react immediately to the opinion on uh, Wednesday, re reiterating his agreement with Representative Johnson that it needs to come down and, right. and now. Strauss also serving on that six-member board right. um, alongside the governor. And I believe the governor in the past has signaled, you know, that the legislature is the one that put this plaque there in the first place, however many decades ago that was, and it should be their decision to take it down. Yeah, that was one of the headlines out of his sole debate with uh, Lupe Valdez. Um, but he he chairs the state preservation board, right? He does. So, he, I mean, he could take this down or he could order if he really had the um, – the will to do it, he could order this taken down pretty quickly, right? It's a, Yeah, it's a six-member board. It's the governor, the lieutenant governor, the speaker of the House, a member each from the House and the Senate, and one citizen member. So that six-member board, according to the Attorney General, has the power to, to vote to take it down if they so choose, and we'll we'll see whether they so choose, I guess. Right, right. Okay, well, we'll be I watching. Just wanted, Go ahead. Was just, I'm so sorry <laughs> to be this person, but Beto O'Rourke also waited. <laughs> That's true. I he wanted did. to be the person who made sure that in this... A, in a tweet, yeah. I believe. Well, I, th Same, I actually think it was, you know, not to be too... Uh, I thought it was interesting. You know, how is Beto O'Rourke going to keep keep a voice in the political conversation. I thought it was interesting to see him weigh what on. Did he and, I mean, I it was he, a, it was well, not a controversial stance he took, obviously among Democrats is, you know, pretty <laughs> cut and dry. They don't want this plaque up. Right. Quote tweeted Eric. Yeah. Johnson. I, quote agree. Tweeted Eric I, Johnson. I agree with Eric. Yeah. I believe he's Take it down, down today. Immediately. Right. Right. Um, yeah. But I, I thought that was an interesting example of, you know, work. Obviously I think a lot of the media attention is going to come to him voluntarily, but it's like, how do you keep your voice out there uh, on these issues, especially after you no longer have the platform of being a, uh, a U.S. House uh, member. One quick question. So there's a six-member board. The speaker is obviously for it, mm -hmm. and the other five members we don't know. You would have to. I would have to check. I believe the governor. What we've heard from him on it is basically that this should be up to the legislature. And as far as I can immediately recall, I don't know if we've heard from the other members of that board. So the governor couldn't like unless he had a majority of the board to join him, which me at least two other members. He couldn't like unilaterally take it down. I don't believe so. Okay. But I imagine if he, you know, pushed that way, he his sure, would be a pretty good Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. Before we get to our final topic, uh, another reminder: please send us your questions, and we'll we'll get to as many as we can before the end of our time. Uh, for our final topic here, I want to talk about uh, Dennis Bonin, the likely next speaker of the Texas House. Um, like we mentioned earlier, we didn't have Tripcast last week. Um, there, it doesn't seem like there's been a lot of huge developments in front of the scenes, but it seems like there's been a decent amount going on behind the scenes in terms of him preparing for a, a likely speakership. Uh, Cassie, you've been following this. Can you tell us a little bit about what uh, Representative Bonin has been up yeah. to these past two weeks? Uh, so I believe last time we were on here, uh, the trip cast came just a couple days after Bonin had announced that he had support from 109 of the 
of his 149 colleagues in the Texas House uh, backing. Seems like years ago. Right, yeah. right, yes, uh, eons and eons ago. Uh, but basically, ever since then, he's, by all appearances, been been moving quickly to try to lay the groundwork so uh, that you know when he's formally elected, if he is formally elected on the first day of the legislature in, in January 2019, that that he's basically ready to go. So I I think somebody fill in the holes as uh, yeah. he's appointed a, a chairman of speak of his speaker transition right. team, yeah. a new chief of staff, a director of the speaker's office, uh, a comms director, and most recently he has just joined Twitter. Dennis Bonin <laughs> has joined right. Twitter, which came uh, just, I believe, a few hours after making the comms director announcement. You know, and in the meantime, I, he's meeting uh, with members earlier this week uh, on his new Twitter account. He announced that he had met with uh, the, the incoming House members, the, the freshman class, um, last night, he was in North Texas meeting with House members, which even earned um, a, a tweet from Jonathan Stickland, who... Earned, I like that. It's <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of work. Yeah. You got to earn it. I mean, you know, Stickland has been his... Uh, right, one. One the, a tweet the one from... Whole, <laughs> you know, Stickland, Freedom Caucus member, has been at least so and far... He wasn't among the 109 uh, original pledges, right? Right, and the yeah. only Freedom Caucus member who you know, as of a couple Mondays ago, was not signed onto this list. You know, he's called it a privilege to have welcomed uh, future, or I guess the next Speaker of the House, Bonin, to Tarrant County. So right. anyway, um, you know, and this is all kind of coming ahead of a GOP caucus meeting on Saturday in Austin, yeah. where the group now sitting at 83 members come. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. I want to talk about that, but yes. a quick question just kind of pivoting off what you just said. Based on what we're hearing about what he's doing behind the scenes, in front of the scenes, since he's announced that he would be the next speaker, basically. Does it seem like he's working to broaden that 109 pledge coalition? I mean, does it seem like he is putting in the work to convince the Democratic holdouts from back then? I mean, they may not be Democratic holdouts anymore. I don't know what his latest tally is, yeah. but that he's, you know, that he is working to further unify, kind of unify the, the, the whole house. Yeah. I mean, what do we know about what he's been saying to Democrats who don't like him or didn't pledge to him initially. Yeah, I, th I think what he's, I think his MO has been, hey, I want to work for the House. I want us to be a unified body that works together. Every member, you know, every, I think he said at his news conference where he announced that he had support, you know, he said that every single member, whether, whether or not you're on this list, you know, you guys matter. And uh, I, I believe a day or two later, you know, he, he rolls out a working group to, to basically help identify the next parliamentarian. Right. And, uh, half Democrats, half Republicans. Right. Five, five Democrats, five Republicans. And, and also uh, it seems like, just looking at those members, like not just half Democrats, half Republicans, but a nice kind of cross-section within those two yeah, parties. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and right? you know, it includes a state representative, Rafael and Chia from Dallas, uh, chairman of the Mexican-American right. Legislative Caucus, who was not on that list. You know, Correct. He's, yeah. he's in this working group. So, you know, he's making at least publicly the, the, the right kind of moves, I guess, to to make it seem like he wants everybody to be involved. And, you know, the Freedom Caucus, once again, was somewhat uh, critical of, of Bonin and mainly just because of his ties to Strauss leadership last year. Sure. And they're, by all appearances, they are taking a very open-minded, clean the slate, you know, we're, we're excited for, for session and we're excited to see what kind of leader Bonin yeah. is. Right. One thing that'll be interesting to watch is that the first day of session, almost always, the speaker's race is over, and the speaker gets 150 votes to say, yes, you're speaker. Um, I think it was last session or two sessions ago where Scott Turner ran against Strauss, and... Um, it was like 13 yeah, supported uh, Turner? Yeah, like about a dozen Republicans in, in a protest vote against Strauss voted for Turner. Um, other than that, they've almost always been uh, uh, unanimous in recent memory. I think like, 10, like 15 years ago... Um, uh, Tom Craddock was 
going to be speaker, no question he was going to get reelected, and Lon Burnham was the one vote against him in a protest, and it was like 149 to 1. So um, I'm assuming at this point it seems like Bonin will probably draw 150 votes, but that is probably something he's probably thinking about is, are any Democrats or potentially Republicans, I would imagine it's probably Democrats, just going to vote against him and protest out of something. But that, that's kind of like, that's going to be the first sign of session is does he draw the unanimous vote? <laughs> We've also seen him, I think, making overtures uh, to the upper chamber. Uh, Dennis Bonin and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick have not always gotten along, you know, have not always seen eye to eye on, on every issue, but they released a statement, I believe just days after Bonin announced he had the votes to become the next speaker, saying, you know, we're looking forward to working together, and we had a productive phone call this morning. So right. reaching out across that aisle as well. Right. I thought it was notable, too, this morning, TPPF, the conservative think tank here in Austin, announced that Bonin's was added to their lineup for their policy orientation in January in Austin, which is kind of their, you know, every other year right before session, they get together a bunch of, you know, lawmakers and statewide officials who are generally sympathetic to their ideas um, and kind of brief the Austin crowd on, on kind of what their legislative agenda is. Um, I don't think Joe Strauss ever, ever spoke at TPPF. You may have to correct me on that, but doubt it. <laughs> so, a little bit of a, a, a notable, I think, change there. Um, one final thing, and you were getting to this earlier, Cassie, this House Republican caucus meeting this weekend, uh, this was initially kind of hyped up because this is where they were going to solidify behind a, you know, a single nominee. It seems like that's changed a little bit now that everyone's kind of singing kumbaya around Dennis Bonin. But I mean, tell us what you expect. Yeah. Uh, so House Republicans are scheduled to meet in Austin on Saturday. Uh, I think they're going to be sitting at 83 seats. So not sure if all of those uh, members are going to be in, in town for the meeting, but right. I, you know, last year, basically the caucus unanimously approved a, a change to their bylaws that would allow for this two-thirds threshold that basically if, if two-thirds of the caucus kind of gets behind a speaker candidate, then the caucus will, in a, in a basically a, a non-binding uh, fashion, support that said candidate uh, for speaker of the house right. before the full chamber vote uh, in January. So... You know, I another reporter at the Tribune, Alex Samuels, and I have been checking in with members. Seems like it's going to be pretty smooth sailing, yeah. short. Wouldn't it be a fun story if it just all blew up? Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> <laughs> Don't. <laughs> Is anyone even, I mean, are people even really going to make the drive at this point, do you think? Like, just, you know, That's what I've been wondering. <laughs> there you have traffic like on 35. It'll be a low turnout election. You never know what you happens know? in a low turnout election. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, all right. Uh, that's all the time we have this week. Uh, before we go, I am excited to tell you about a story coming soon to the Tribune. Tomorrow, we're launching a series that examines how school segregation is far from a distant memory in Texas. Read our first story about the challenges for Longview Independent School District tomorrow morning. You can get the story in your inbox by signing up for the brief at texastribune.org slash subscribe. Uh, thanks to our TribCast sponsors this week in lieu, Texas Gulf Coast Community Colleges, the Holdsworth Center, and the Texas State University System. And an extra special thanks to Spoon for our theme music. On behalf of Aman, Emma, Cassie, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Patrick. Thanks for joining us.